the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to the Q&A segment of Vatican Insider. The question this week is especially fascinating, and the answer is a bit lengthy, but also fascinating. I've been asked, does the Pope ever perform exorcisms, and if so, how often has this happened? Is there a specific ritual? Well, before answering that question about the Pope, let me just say some words about exorcism. Both canon law and the Catechism of the Catholic Church teach us about exorcism. The Catechism tells us in number 1673, when the Church asks publicly and authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ that a person or object be protected against the power of the evil one and withdrawn from his dominion, it is called exorcism. Jesus performed exorcisms, and from him the Church has received the power and office of exorcising. In a simple form, exorcism is performed at the celebration of baptism, when we renounce Satan. The solemn exorcism, called a major exorcism, can be performed only by a priest and with the permission of the bishop. Pope John Paul, in September 2000, performed an impromptu exorcism on a teenage girl who flew into a possessed rage at the end of an audience in St. Peter's Square. The chief exorcist for the Diocese of Rome, the late Pauline Father Gabriele Amorth, told the Catholic News Service at the time that the Pope spent more than half an hour praying over the girl and ordering a demon to leave her, but failed to fully cure her. The 19-year-old Italian girl with a history of possession was in the front row at the Pope's weekly general audience on September 6th. As the Pope prepared to leave, she began screaming incomprehensibly and speaking in a cavernous voice, said Father Amorth. As security personnel struggled to retain her superhuman efforts to break free, Bishop Gianni Danzi, a top Vatican official at the time, alerted the Pope. In an area away from the square, the Pope hugged this poor little girl, tried to console her, and promised that the next day, Thursday morning, he would celebrate his Mass for her. Father was not present at the papal exorcism, but said he had performed an exorcism on the girl the previous day. He said that after the girl met with the Pope, Bishop Danzi, and he performed another exorcism that lasted for two hours. This is a case where the possession is very, very strong, said Father Amorth, founder and president of the International Association of Exorcists. There is a very lengthy, very specific prescribed formula for performing exorcisms. A revised rite has been enforced since November 1998. The rite may be used by priests who have been given a specific faculty to do so by the diocesan bishop. The USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, dedicates a lengthy explanation to this rite and its history. So just go to their site and search for the word exorcism. Signs of diabolic possession include the speaking of unknown languages, the knowing of distant or hidden things, and the manifestation of abnormal physical strength. Yet each of these may be attributable to other causes and are not necessarily signs of diabolic possession. 
spiritual signs such as an aversion for the name of God, the holy name of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saints, the church, the word of God, the church's rites or sacramentals and sacred images, must also be taken into consideration. In November 2020, Italian journalist Fabio Marchesi Ragona published My Name is Satan, Stories of Exorcisms from the Vatican to Medjugorje. In the book, he talks to exorcists to answer questions about the phenomenon and the church's response, and he tells the stories of ordinary people, plus cases that went all the way to the Vatican. A Catholic news agency piece about the book notes, A story Ragona gives evidence for in his book is Venerable Pius XII's attempts at exorcising Hitler. The concern of the Pope, according to witnesses, was also that of averting the protracted massacre against the Jews. And, perhaps driven by desperation, he had also attempted the extreme card of the ritual of liberation from the devil against the Fuhrer an attempt that, however, did not have the desired effect. And this was not the only attempt by Pius XII. Ragona said he spoke to several exorcists who said, quote, the devil was terrified of St. John Paul and of Benedict XVI. Though there are personal accounts that the prayers of Benedict XVI may have helped liberate some people from possession, there is no evidence that he, as Pope or before, ever carried out the rite of exorcism, according to Ragona. However, during Benedict's pontificate, an elderly Indian cardinal, Ivan Diaz, did perform an exorcism in the guardhouse of the Swiss guards. There's also testimony that St. John Paul II performed at least three exorcisms while Pope, in 1982, 1984, and the one we spoke about in 2000. The book shares details of these moments, as witnessed by the Pope's longtime photographer Arturo Mari, and as testified to by Father Amorth. According to reports, those of 1982 and 1984 were effective in permanently liberating the young women. But a third, which took place outside Peter's Square, we just mentioned it, of John Paul's general audience in 2000, had some good effect but did not succeed in liberating the girl, according to Amorth. There are no reports of Pope Francis as Pope or as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, Argentina, ever performing an exorcism. So, as I said, a bit long, but fascinating stuff. a doctor of the church and one of the greatest defenders of Christ's divinity. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. And Athanasius of Alexandria fought against the Arian heresy that questioned the divinity of Christ. He once condemned the Arians as opposers of Christ who had dug a pit of ungodliness. It was said of him, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, but for Christ. He died in 373. For more about the doctors of the church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. From Rome to your home, EWTN's Vatican Bureau lets you watch all of the important events from Rome, even if you don't have a TV. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home. It's easy. Watch live on EWTN YouTube and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network.
Hi, I'm Joan Ebistinsky, station manager at Holy Family Radio in central Pennsylvania. When I found out about Catholic Radio, I knew that God wanted me to be a part of it, and I'm glad I am. Catholic Radio makes a difference in people's lives. It has the power to lead others to the truth of Christ and His Church. With Catholic Radio, we can nourish our Catholic family and share our faith with others. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio, now more than ever. Being part of EWTN Media Missionaries is a perfect way to help us fulfill our calling from Christ to make disciples of all nations. Visit EWTNMissionaries.com. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Reverend Brad Easterbrooks, a deacon at the North American College in Rome. Last week in part one, we learned of his pre-seminary days, work at a consulting firm and on political campaigns, law school, then the Navy as a lawyer for JAG, and then the path straightened out and led to the priesthood. And this week, we look at Brad's wish to spend his priesthood as a military chaplain, life in a parish that spans the globe. Now, I want to move on to what I mentioned at the early part of of this, talking about your priesthood and your desire to be a military chaplain. Let's let's talk about that aspect of it, because it's wonderful. would love to. So I'm what's called a co-sponsored seminarian with my diocese, which is the Diocese of San Diego, and the Archdiocese for the Military Services. So what does that mean? That means that I'm from San Diego, so I grew up in a town called Carlsbad, California. I went to Carlsbad High School. My mom and dad retired to Oceanside. My sister's in Solana Beach. We know Carlsbad. <laughs> and my grandmother, my grandparents were from Oceanside. So, uh, and in fact, I was born in Oceanside, so it's it's right next oh, door. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I'm from San Diego, and and so I entered seminary formation with the Diocese of San Diego. And what that means is the Diocese of San Diego is also going to be my incarnating diocese. Sure. What that means is I'll be a, I have to be a priest of a local of church. Of some place. <laughs> of a place. Yes. <laughs> so and I'll be it, religious priests are priests of their religious community or religious order and diocesan priests which is what I'll be are priests of a diocese of a place. Uh, and so I'll be ordained by the Bishop of San Diego for the Diocese of San Diego which means that will be my home. But uh, there's an agreement between the Bishop of San Diego and the Archbishop for the military services, which is its own archdiocese. So after a few years in San Diego, I'm going to be loaned to the, the Navy, uh, and I'll receive my faculties from the Archbishop for the military services to serve in the Navy. And that will be for a period of time. It could be a few years or it could be uh, for a career in the, in the Navy, which, which I've already started because I, have, I already have that time as a Navy JAG. Um, and I'll serve as a military chaplain in in the Navy, and then at the end of that process, I'll return to my home diocese and and continue working as a priest in my home diocese. So, and I think just to let our our listeners know that the it's called the military ordinariate. The military ordinariate is not it's an archdiocese in a way. A diocese or archdiocese has territory. When you say the Archdiocese of New York, it literally has territorial limits, or San Diego. 
But a military ordinariate is wherever the military are and the service uh, of the priesthood is. So it can be one day in Japan. It can also be at an American base. But it's not a territorially limited archdiocese. That's right. It, it's it's very unique because um, the, uh, the way that the um, that church law works normally is that the, the diocese is of a territory. And th- this archdiocese uh, has jurisdiction over people. Yeah, so right. to, to use a legal term, jurisdiction, sure. it, it has, it, so it's the archbishop for the military is the shepherd over people. So wherever they happen to be, uh, then he is, he's their, their bishop, their shepherd. And so it doesn't, it's not just the military members. So a military member who's on active duty falls under this archdiocese, but also their immediate family members. So the spouse, right. the children, uh, and then also federal government employees who are serving overseas. So if, if uh, you know, diplomats who are serving abroad and their family members, they all fall under this. So it actually constitutes millions of people. So it's a very large archdiocese. Huge. A- and then the territory, the territorial jurisdictions expanses almost the whole world. Wherever these people are, and it's hundreds of countries, it's almost every country, that's where the archbishop of the military is, is going to have... Um, responsibility uh, for a flock of people. And so in the Navy, uh, which is a subset of that, I'll be a priest uh, of, uh, as a Navy chaplain, I'll be a Catholic Navy chaplain, but my uh, my flock will be wherever yeah. the Navy happens to be yeah. and and where their families happen to be. One of the things that I didn't really know until I was in the military myself, and especially because I was a practicing Catholic discerning the priesthood, the Navy and and the families and the need for this type of service uh, is related to the fact that when someone joins the military, they have a spouse, they have a family. When they get stationed overseas, their whole family often is going with them sure. to a, a military installation overseas. When they're out on a ship, their family's still back you know, the on base, the base yeah. or, or near the base, uh, relying on, on the base community. And so the, the Catholic chaplain is, is really responsible for a parish that has been moved overseas. And, and so, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm currently volunteering as a deacon to help serve at the, the naval installation in Naples, which has... Uh, so many thousands of people that they have their own mall on the base. They have a vet. They have a hospital. Yep. They have everything you need for a town, uh, because it is a town. It's an American town in the middle of in in the middle of Italy. And so I had a friend, excuse me, who was um, from Camp Pendleton. She was being transferred to Gaeta because she was going to have to teach the Navy people down there in Naples how to set up field hospitals. It was kind of like right. reminiscence of, of MASH, of the days of, <laughs> uh, of MASH. And so I went down to Naples and stayed um, in uh, Linda's apartment, and the whole building was, was all Navy people. And I really got to see a lot of the structures and places that you're mm-hmm. talking about. It's a, it's a city within a city, really. It, it is. They have a track with a high school with a football team. You know, they have everything because there's kids. Yeah. And and so um, so when the Navy chaplain, the Catholic chaplain, is serving a, a community, which is much like a parish, it's not just that there are these active duty members who need, you know, they, they have the right to a faith life, but they have their whole families there. And so the only way there's going to be a confirmation program 
or a CCD program or a First Communion program for all of these kids is if there's going to be a Catholic priest who's going to sure. help run it. And, and so I saw that need personally when I was overseas in Japan and when I was on a ship. So I, I was on a ship, not for, I wasn't ever ship's company. I was always working in a, a litigation setting, which meant that I was going to be near where there was a courtroom. Sure. But I, would, you know, I did actually help out um, every once in a while on a ship. So when I was on a ship, well, how was I going to go to Sunday Mass? There's thousands of sailors on a ship. When a ship's deployed, uh, there might be 5,000 sailors on that aircraft carrier with 10 ships you know, associated with that aircraft carrier sure. who also have another 5,000 sailors. So of that 10,000, you might have 3,000 Catholics. Yeah. How are they going to have Sunday Mass? Only if there's a priest out with them. And then at the naval base in Yokosuka, Japan, I got there and there was no priest, despite the fact that there were thousands of Catholics. Wow. And, uh, and so I experienced firsthand what it's like, not just to be a Catholic who wants to go to Mass and receive the sacraments, who wants to go to confession, who are, you know, because in Japan, which is a 1% Christian country, yeah. and even less than that are Catholic, the only way I was going to get confession is if I was going to find a priest who could speak English, because I didn't speak sure. Japanese. Sure. And it, it turned out that that was an hour and a half away. I, I found an, an English-speaking priest an hour and a half away. So if I wanted confession, I'd had to get on a train and, and, and ride the train an hour and a half to find an English-speaking priest wow. to go to confession or to go to Mass. And so what I saw, because of the gap in Japan, and we eventually did get a priest, but because of that gap, this was one for one. If, if there's not a priest there, so if you, if you lose a priest, if you take a priest out of ministry because because he's retiring, because he's, he becomes ill, wh whatever the reason is, all of the ministry that he's able to accomplish goes away. It's, it's not wow. like, you know, here in Rome, it's very easy. If, if one church shuts down, there's, there's almost over 900, 400, others, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, nearby. But there isn't another church 10 minutes down the road. If exactly. without that priest there, there's nobody. And, and now the CCD program goes away. The youth group goes away. This, this is a part of my discernment, but the ship pulled in, and uh, a man by the name of then Father Coffee, Father Joe Coffee, got off that ship, and he, d he decided to spend his vacation time from the ship celebrating Mass at the, the chapel on base because he knew of the, of the need. I remember sitting, sitting in the pew, very excited that we had a, a, a Navy chaplain who was there to assist. His homily began with the words, let me tell you the story about how I discerned a call to the priesthood at the age of 30. Wow. And I was 30 when he said that. And so I, I knew that God was showing me through the need of military chaplains, of Catholic military chaplains, that, that God was going to use that need to show me that, he, that I was perhaps being called, not just to Catholic priesthood, but also to military chaplaincy to help fill that need. Eventually, the, the base did get a permanent Navy chaplain, Father Leto, of a Filipino background, but he had joined the Navy decades before, and so he, uh, he ended up help, helping me, uh, you know, discern that path. So, so I think through this, you know, what if, what if I didn't have that Navy chaplain to help me discern this as a man who, who wanted to, you know, consider the priesthood? It, it just so many things that God puts together sure. to help make sure that, um, that I can hear his voice. The chaplaincy I'm most mm -hmm. familiar with is the one um, at Pearl Harbor, 
because I have very, I've been to Hawaii 10 times. I have very good friends. They're retired Navy. But Jan works on the music and for all the masses mm-hmm. there. And so I, when I'm in Hawaii, I attend Mass on the base. And I know it can be dreadful when the priest is called away. It was like, okay, where do we get a priest? In this case, they're lucky because they're uh, on, you know, Hawaii and there are other parishes. So you can have a priest come and say the, the Sunday Mass at at 10 or 10.30, whatever time it is. But mm-hmm. that's that's the base I'm most uh, familiar with, you know. So you were talking about uh, the thousands of people on a ship and, and you know, how many are Catholic. I've read statistics and been told this by Navy people, too, that in the U.S. military branches, not just the Navy, mm-hmm. it's an average of 25 to 27% that are Catholics, which and- I found amazing. Yes, and and uh, and even a little more than that. And I, I don't have the exact figure with me, but it, the military is is slightly more Catholic than the American population at large, um, because about a quarter of the United States yeah. is Catholic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the military is a little more Catholic than average. And then the pra- the rate of practicing Catholics among that number is actually a little higher than than the American experience as well. There's something about you know the the disruption in life when when a family is is taken from wherever they're from and then they're moved somewhere you know and that could be somewhere in the United States or it's somewhere overseas or it's wherever it is and they don't so they don't have their home community anymore right. so where does that community come from what's been so touching to me especially you know what I've what I've seen both in my experience when I was in the military and then in a huge way recently at the Naples base in Italy the, where that community comes from is the faith community. Sure. Because because all of these families are different. They come from very different backgrounds, the South, the North, the West. But they have one thing in common, their faith in Jesus Christ, their faith in, in the Eucharist. And so it draws them together and it creates this this community that uh, that would be, you know, the envy of, of many parishes, uh, you know, in the U.S., um, in, in some ways, because it has to be that way, because they're, that's what draws them all together on the weekends. And the military will often give what they call liberty periods, uh, so, so families can travel on sure. weekends without having to put in for vacation time. Um, and so a lot of families will travel, but what's so fascinating to me is the number of families that often will just stay back because they they know that they're going to be served by uh, a military chaplain sure. that they'll they'll be able to have that Catholic community, um, you know. So their their vacation, their their time of recreation is actually to then go go to church on the base to spend time with 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 us deacons and other seminarians. But see, this this is what I think is so wonderful um, when you and I talked briefly about your experience, you know, in Naples. The fact that, I mean, you're not even a priest yet in just a few more months, but you already have this amazing background and awareness of the needs of military families, uh, uh, the awareness that faith is the thread in the tapestry that, you know, binds them all together. So you, you're already going to bring an enormous awareness of this to your, your first responsibility the first time you were assigned to be the, the Navy chaplain. Exactly. I'll be a Navy chaplain who relied on Navy chaplaincy before. So I'll have, I'll have sure. experienced it from both ends. And, you know, 
I, uh, I was able to preach the homily at the Christmas Eve Mass this last Christmas, um, and it was as a deacon. And I was reflecting on this in prayer when I was down there over the Christmas period, that I had spent um, so many holidays, so many feast days uh, on a military base as a parishioner, you know, um, sitting in a pew um, away from my family. And and so I, I knew what they were all experiencing, you know, especially because even if it's if they have their family with them, they don't have their whole family with them. And now I was going to be able to minister to them. And and that was a moment, of, you know, where God said, see, this is where it's leading. You get to do all of these things in service to my church. Some people think of celibacy or giving one's life you know, to the faith is this, this terrible thing. Like, how, how could you ever possibly be happy? Well, yes, there is a sacrifice element to this. There, sure. is, there is an aspect to this where I'm giving something up. But in giving one thing up, God's giving me this life that's For different. every challenge, you're going to have a great and, joy. And, and the main thing is you're going to know that God is, he's got your back. That's and, right. And there's true joy in doing God's will and and there's you know this is the paradox of Christianity. There's joy in service. There's joy in giving. Yeah. Saint Paul asks us to account for our joy. It's supposed to be in our faith, and we're asked to. People want to know why we're joyful. Well, it's because of our faith. We may have other things going on in life that give us joy, but when you get down to the common denominator, you know it it, it certainly is the faith. That's right. And he Paul was someone who suffered a lot. He was flogged. He was thrown out, you know, and then he eventually was, was, was executed for his faith. But he constantly had this joy, you know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So it, for him, it was all gain. It was all, yeah. you know, living in the joy and the love of God. Brad, as our time runs down, I just want to remind our, our listeners, if you're in San Diego, you know, you may be meeting a priest someday, Father Brad Easterbrooks, in a few months anyway. You can say, yeah, I heard you on Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Now, what's ahead of you just these next few weeks then, or months before you're ordained? Well, you know, it's it's February now, but we're still in finals from the fall semester. So there's a, oh, <laughs> a, oh. a shifted schedule here because of, of when the summer ends. So so first it's going to be finals. And I, I'm studying for a what's called a licentiate or a license. Oh, right in dogmatic theology at the Gregorian University. But the one thing you must have in life is a PhD. Did you know that? I didn't. My dad that. gave me mine. I was so lucky. PhD, passion, hard work, and dreams. <laughs> That's if, good. If that is part of your military chaplaincy and just your life as a priest, then you have it made. That's right. You so, really do. So I'll finish this year, and I have I have additional studies and, um, and, and time spent at the seminary, and then I'll fly home to be ordained a priest in June. Well, I'm going to say to you what my mother wrote for many years as she signed emails. She started emailing at the age of 84, okay? She was an amazing lady. And she signed her emails, and then I signed mine back with, God sit on your shoulder. So wherever you are, Brad Easterbrooks, soon to be Father Brad Easterbrooks, God sit on your shoulder. Thank you so much. God bless. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com.
Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.